Thank you for that preparatory reading, you guys. Uh, good morning. My name is Andrew, and I'm the campus pastor here uh, at the Leewood campus. And I'll echo Kenny. Uh, thanks for braving the, the ice this morning for those of you who had to, had to do that. Hopefully it's gone by the time you leave. Well, this is going to be a really weird way to start this sermon, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. So uh, I promise it'll make sense eventually. But uh, how many of you guys really, really like kind of dystopian future movies, like The Matrix, novels, stuff like that? Raise your hand if you like that. Yeah, it's a little more honest than first service. Good job. Good work. Um, I, I really, really like uh, those, that genre as well. Uh, there's something about looking into the bleak future uh, that makes me feel a lot better about the present, uh, which is, I think, what I like the most about it. <laughs> And uh, like, I mean, many of you raised your hand, and if we went by ticket sales, right, this is a popular genre uh, nationwide. Uh, Divergent and The Hunger Games, they're huge financial successes, uh, both as books and as movies. And some of my favorite stories, and I think some of our most profound stories, uh, are really about our, you know, our present sins played out to the extreme in the future. And two of the most uh, famous of these uh, stories that we have uh, are uh, 1984 by George Orwell and Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And uh, I, most of you probably read these in high school or college. Uh, if you haven't, uh, you should. They're excellent books. So I bring all of this up because I was recently introduced to another book by a guy named Neil Postman uh, who uh, wrote a book called uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which sounds like something that could be written today but this was actually written about 30 years ago uh, by Postman. It was based on a talk that he gave comparing 1984 and A Brave New World. And he, basically he was saying one of these books got the human condition better than the others. So this is a little long, but I want to read you just, just a couple paragraphs from the foreword of that book. Here's what Postman says. He says, We were keeping our eye on 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves, the roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares, like think Big Brother. But we'd forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, these two did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression, but in Huxley's vision, no Big Brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression and to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared that those, uh, there would be those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned out in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture, Huxley, that we would become a trivial one. In 1984, people are controlled by pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, and here was the line that stood out to me, Orwell feared that what we hate would ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. And the funny thing is, as I read that, Jesus said the same thing about 2,000 years ago. But he wasn't talking about a dystopian future. He wasn't talking about some possibility 
uh, in the human person. He was talking about every human heart for all time. And Huxley observed, rightly, but Jesus knew that we are ultimately ruled by what we love, what we love the most in life, whatever that is. And it can be a lot of different things. That It shapes our will. It shapes our decisions. And ultimately, it, 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 it shapes everything about us. Every human being is wired this way. We are desiring, treasuring creatures. We love things. And that is why Jesus, in his most famous sermon on the mount, says this, and you heard it read, where, where your treasure is, there your heart, the very center of who you are, will be also. And in our text this morning, which I'm going to read in, in just a minute, Jesus points to one of the most powerful counterfeit treasures in the world, money, possessions, stuff. And essentially, he will teach us, beware of making money the thing that you love the most. Beware. So where last week Jesus said, if you choose the wrong audience, it will destroy you. This week he says, if you love the wrong thing, it will destroy you. So here is how Jesus puts it. If you uh, turn to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew's the first book in the New Testament, chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if the eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. So here's Jesus' case against making money the thing you love the most. He really wraps it around three images in this text. Uh, here they are. Money makes for a bad treasure. You'll see that in 19 to 21, verses 19 to 21. Money makes for a bad eye or a bad lens, verses 22 to 23. And money makes for a bad master, it's verse 24. That's where we're going this morning. So first, money makes for bad treasure. I and mean, you just heard it read, so I won't repeat it. But here's Jesus' basic point on this. Don't bet at all. Don't bet your whole life on something that can be taken away from you. Where moth and rust can destroy, where a thief can break in and steal. Now, when we think about money and possessions, we don't often talk about moths and rust anymore. But we talk about things like inflation and bonds and markets and bank failures, and a bunch of other things that erode the value of our stuff. Okay, it's the same principle, same thing. Now notice, Jesus, this is a remarkably logical argument from Jesus. Okay, there are real spiritual reasons why loving money the most is a really bad idea, but Jesus doesn't start there. And notice he doesn't say money is evil, so give it all away. <laughs> no, he says money will not last that's its problem. So don't bet your soul on it. And Jesus, again, his point is not don't, leave, uh, don't love money because it might fail you. His point is don't love money because it will fail you. It will not last in every case. 
And I love the way John Ortberg illustrates this point. Um, he's a pastor out in Menlo Park, California. He tells this great story, and I've, I've used it before, but I love it, so I, I don't care, so leave me alone. Um, he tells this story about his grandmother, Golda, which is just a great name for a grandmother, and, and, and how she taught him to play Monopoly. And in the introduction to one of his books, uh, he shares how she used to just destroy him at Monopoly. He could not be her until the, the one summer where he finally beats her, and here's how he describes that. He says, I looked at my grandmother. This was the woman who had taught me how to play. She was an old lady by now, a widow. She raised my mother. She loved my mother, and she loved me, and I took everything she had. <laughs> I destroyed her financially and psychologically. I watched her give up her last dollar and quit in utter defeat, and it was the greatest moment of my life. <laughs> But she had one more thing to teach me, all those houses and hotels, all that property, boardwalk, park place, the railroads, the utility companies, all those thousands of dollars my grandmother said when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. That's the name of his book, by the way, the stuff we acquire, whatever it is, the money, the clothes, the cars, the houses, the 401ks, the stock options, the companies, the college degrees, the high school diplomas, it all goes back in the box. Jesus says, it is dumb to live for something that you cannot take with you. So here's an action step. Here's what we can do with this. Take time this week and take inventory of your treasure. Take inventory. Because we are all of us storing up stuff. I don't care how old you are. You're five years old. You're 90 years old. You're anywhere in between. You have stuff you're acquiring. And maybe, just maybe... It is beginning to compete for that top spot in your heart. And as a culture, that top spot being stuff, I think is pretty much an undeniable fact. There are now more than 30,000 self-storage facilities in the U.S. with more than a billion square feet for people to store the stuff that they can't keep in their houses anymore. And 50 years ago, this industry of self-storage, it didn't exist now it is estimated we spend about $12 billion a year paying other people to store our stuff. There is a television show about people buying abandoned storage units to get more stuff from themselves from the stuff that people didn't want anymore. And, you know, you laugh at that. It is. It's ridiculous. And yet here we are. And, and we, we often, all of us too, we love these things more than anything else, don't we? Sometimes. So take inventory. What do you daydream about? What do you browse on Amazon for no reason? What are you willing to go into debt to get? What can't you say no to? Questions like those, they can help you to see where your treasure is or to see where you're tempted to put it. And also, I know this, that this sounds really terrible, <laughs> but take a look at your spending and see where you spend your money. And I'll just put a blanket statement over all the application in this sermon. It, can, it's, it might be really hard. It's painful for me too. Talking about money is one of our least favorite things to talk about. If we preached on money as much as Jesus did, we wouldn't have a church, um, right? Because it makes us all uncomfortable. I just want to name that, okay? I get that this is hard, but it's important. So take a look at your spending. There are, there are few more powerful value statements in your life than your savings account your checking account. Because Jesus was right. Where your treasure is, your checkbook is also. 
And here's the really hard part for me. The last part may have been really hard for you. This is the hard part for me. Don't look at your spending. Don't just look at your spending. Look at your saving. Because some of us, we're not super tempted to spend lavishly. I mean, that's subjective, but we're really tempted to hoard money. The Bible talks a lot about the wisdom in saving, especially in Proverbs. It talks about uh, saving money can help you be more generous. You can leave an inheritance to your children's children. Those are all great things. But, and again, this is subjective, but it's so important. At some point, that savings account, that retirement portfolio, that piggy bank in your room becomes not just a wise investment. It becomes a God that you begin to worship and to love. So take inventory of all of that and then start investing it better. And, and here is Jesus' advice. He says, use all that stuff to store up treasure in heaven. Start using your money and putting it places where God is working. Invest in his kingdom, which is what this whole Sermon on the Mount is about, is living in God's kingdom. Put your money and your stuff and your heart and your love there because moth and rust and circumstance and market crashes and housing bubbles and globalization, they cannot touch that investment. It's for sure. And I know that this will sound self-serving, but it isn't. I am theologically convinced of this, okay? One of the surest investments in life is God's church. Investing in God's church is a key to the kingdom life. We had a recent conversation with a wealthy investor, and he'd given very generously to many, many churches. And we asked him why, and he said, Jesus said, I will build my church. He said, there's no better investment than that. There's no more secure investment than that. And this is Jesus' basic point. Invest your stuff in things that will last. Eternal things. It's not, and it's not just a spiritual act. It's a logical one. And if we really begin to grasp that, I think our question around money will begin to shift. Because I think our tendency is to look at a passage like this and to walk away and to think, okay, well, how, how much earthly treasure is too much? And that will help you cut costs, but it will not help you invest better. And you can still be ruled by stuff. The better question is, how much heavenly permanent treasure can I lay up in heaven now? It's the better question. And if we invest there, our heart will follow even if we don't feel like it. That's why Jesus ends the point by saying where your treasure is, then your heart goes there too. Just investing your earthly treasure in God's kingdom, that simple act, can actually make you a better follower of Jesus. It refocuses your heart on God. It forces you to trust him with your daily bread, with your daily needs. Money makes for really bad treasure. So use it to get treasure in heaven where moth and rust and theft are not an issue. Now, um, My hunch is that most people in this room, you're kind of internally nodding along. Like, yeah, that's, I I believe, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you, you, you agree with his basic point. Materialism, bad. People, helping people, investing in people, good, right? We, we, we all believe that. And my hunch is that when Jesus gave this sermon for the first time, the same thing was happening. Oh, yes, Jesus, devotion to God, so much more important than devotion to money. I've been trying to tell my brother-in-law this for years. 
you know, when you get the podcast or the book, when you write your, give it to, I'm going to give it to him because he needs this message, right? Which is why Jesus, he, the next thing he does, he does this really weird thing. He talks about the eyes. And it's a really confusing passage. Um, but Jesus knows something that we always forget when we talk about money and stuff. He says, money is a bad treasure, yes, but it, all, the love of money is a bad lens. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Here's how Jesus puts it. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, what in the world? It's really confusing. This is what I think Jesus is saying. If your eye isn't working, literally, if your eye isn't working, even if you are in a, a room full of light, like the room we're in right now, your whole body is functionally in darkness because no other part of your body can, can receive and interpret light and make it meaningful and practical to your life. My hand can't tell me there's a stool right here. You're going to hit it if you keep going. It can't tell me turn right in 20 feet. You're, that's what your eyes do. And if your eye is broken, no amount of light around you will get your attention or change your direction. And it's like Jesus is saying, look, I see a lot of nodding heads out there as I'm preaching, but your eye is broken. You can't even hear what I'm saying and apply it to yourselves. The love of money is the lens through which you are interpreting everything I have said up to this point. And no amount of light, no amount of truth from me can get through to you until we fix your eye. We gotta talk about your eye. And Jesus, as usual, is, is absolutely brilliant here because the love of money, greed, the worship of stuff, it can break your eye like nothing else. It has the power to distort everything else you see, everything else you do, every decision that you make. It even has the power to convince you that it doesn't exist. Your lens can be so broken by greed, watch this, that you can't see your lens is broken by greed. As a pastor, I can tell you this, okay? I've had many conversations with people about uh, things they struggle with, issues they have uh, as part of uh, my job. And I was thinking this week, I cannot for the life of me remember anyone calling me, texting me, emailing me, talking to me about their problem of loving money or stuff too much. Not, not one time. And my guess is most of us in this room, and I, everything I'm saying applies to me, okay? My, my hunch is most of us in this room right now, we have not seriously considered that we may be in our heart of hearts greedy people. We've never asked the question. And I think Jesus knew we would have this problem when we heard him teaching on this, that greed is that deceptive. It's an eye problem. It's a lens problem. Because we hear sermons like this one, like Jesus talking, uh, like the one Jesus is giving about, about money and stuff, and, and we think, okay, I know I can get better at this, but this isn't a big issue for me. That's a problem for rich people, and I'm not rich enough to have that problem. So first of all, uh, love of money and stuff is one of those problems you can have without having much of money or stuff. The amount that you have is not the problem. Second of all, we are all pretty rich. I mean, relatively speaking, let me put it to you this way. Jesus had to say this warning about greed. 
to a first century audience that lived on less money in a day than we probably spend on Starbucks on the way here. It's like, ouch, why'd you say that? Um, I'm right there with you. And I, some of you are like, I'm so depressed, right? I need to go buy something right now, right? The, the, <laughs> <laughs> the lens, it may be broken. It may be broken, and we don't want to hear about it. So here's so action step here. Okay, take a look at what you're looking at. And, and there may be a better way to put this. What gets your attention? For example, especially with people, do you, do you tend to measure yourself up against what other people have or how much they make? Is that what you notice? Is that what you look at? Is that what, you, what stands out to you about people very quickly? Uh, students in the room, I think this is a unique issue, this comparison game. This is a unique issue at your stage of life. It never goes away, but it's very intense, I think, at your stage. It was for me. I wish my clothes were as nice as theirs. I, I don't need new shoes, but I want them because then that will make me worthy of this group of people or that person's attention. Do you tend to look at material things to measure your own self-worth? Or to measure the worth of other people? How much do they, I make more than that? Okay, I don't want to talk to them. Oh gosh, look at that, I don't, that outfit. I don't, that's not a friend of mine. Hidden in that is a lens problem. You cannot see the world rightly. You cannot see yourself. You cannot see other people. You're blind to reality. So take a look at what you're looking at. And here's the really hard part. Don't take your own word for it. This is the hardest part. This makes me the most uncomfortable, but I think that this is right. If we really might have a lens problem and there's no one in this room who is immune to this, no one, if we really might have a lens problem, we probably need another pair of eyes on our money and on our stuff. And many of us have accountability in our marriages and in our sexuality and in how, even maybe how we manage our time. Those are really great things. But how many of us have a trusted friend or advisor or a group of advisors that have permission to look at how we're spending our money? I know, it's like, I don't even want to think about that, let alone ask someone else to think about it. And again, I don't care how old you are in this room. You need this. I need this. We all, because love of money makes for a terrible lens to see the world. And it will deceive you. We need help. Okay, money is a terrible lens. Finally, last image Jesus gives. Money makes for a bad master. Okay, here is Jesus' conclusion. This kind of wraps up the whole thing. He says, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says, eventually, if money is your treasure, it will break your eye. And if your eye is broken long enough, your stuff will enslave you. It will be your mountain. You will not own your stuff. It will begin to own you. And Jesus says, don't kid yourself. You cannot have that and God. You cannot serve money and God. You can only have one. So action step for us. Make money your servant, not your master. Because money is a fantastic servant. Jesus doesn't get into this here a whole lot, but he does elsewhere. And the whole Bible is full of teaching on how good, helpful, and beautiful wealth can be. 
I mean, the, the big story of God, God is, a, is, a, is an overabundant, wealthy, rich, beyond belief God who loves good things, who created all good things. And if you don't believe me, read Revelation's picture of the city that he's preparing now at the end of time. Gold, jewels, crystals, everywhere. The wealth is amazing. It's stored up is amazing, but it's a servant. And the key to making money your servant, at least according to the Bible, really, it's the key, is, is generosity. Think about it with me. Whenever Jesus encounters someone in his ministry that he perceives is ruled or mastered by money or stuff, what does he say to that person? He doesn't say, stop it. <laughs> stop loving money. No, that doesn't work. And he knows that. What does he say? He says, Give your stuff away, more of it than you're comfortable giving away. Be, gen be, be generous, give it away. For some people, that's everything they have. He looks at someone and says, give it all away and come follow me. For others, it's half, okay? The number, you're gonna, you could run in circles trying to figure out, well, what number does God want me to give, okay? The key to making money your servant is giving more of it away, getting better at generosity over time, investing it in places that don't benefit you directly. Right, young folks out there, you, you, you may not have a lot of money right now, but what can you be generous with? Your stuff. And I, I mean this seriously. How many toys do you really need? <laughs> I mean, I, parents in there are thinking, yeah, amen. But I'm serious. I mean, how, think about that. If you, how many do you really need? How many clothes do you really need? How many pairs of jeans do you really need? What can you give away even if it hurts a little bit? Make stuff your servant. Adults, grown-ups, as our standard of living increases, which is not a bad thing, the discipline of generosity has to grow with it. It becomes even more important because the temptation in our time and culture and space is that the more your income increases, the more your stuff should increase too. But that's a bad investment. See, God gives the gift of money to serve another purpose, so how might our generosity increase alongside of our wealth? Because nothing will put wealth in its place better than generosity. So many of you here this morning are, are better at this. You don't need me to hear, you don't need me to tell you this, but we can always grow in this area. Every one of us, you never arrive in generosity. Because money truly can be a great servant, but it is a terrible master. And it is a terrible savior. It, it promises security, but it, it can protect you from nothing of real consequence. Nothing. You can still get sick. You can lose someone you love. You can make a terrible mistake. You're going to die, and it can't stop that. It cannot protect you. It cannot. It promises comfort, but it will only increase your anxiety. Okay, John Rockefeller, pretty rich guy, said, I have made millions, but they brought me no happiness. Now, if you're like me, you, you hear that and you think, you're a liar. <laughs> <laughs> of course it made you happy. He has no reason to lie to you here. He built his whole, uh, he, he, what he should say here is, yeah, I made a ton of money, it was awesome because I'm awesome. He, he says, this has left me empty. He has no reason to lie to you. So the next thing, you, if you're like me, the next thing you think is, well, fine, but I would be different. I would be, ha I, I would be happy. 
Give me half of his money. And I would be content. No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. Because we aren't content now. And we're wealthier than most of the world. And we're not happy now. (laughs) You think more money is the answer to your anxiety problem? It's not. Because no amount of money will stop you from worrying. We got a whole sermon on that next week, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that alone. Money promises status. But you never stop comparing yourself to other people. Never. You finally make enough money, you move into the new neighborhood, and suddenly you're the poorest person in the neighborhood. It never ends. Never. Because money is a terrible master. But here's where Jesus goes. This is where Jesus goes. He says, But there is a master who can protect you. There's a master who can free you from fear and anxiety. There's a master who can tell you just exactly how much you are worth. Right? Money never gave anything up for you. Money never died for you. But there's a master who did. Money can't save you. Money goes back in the box for someone else to play with. But there's a master who can save you. And Jesus, throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount, you know what his real purpose is? You know what he's doing in every one of these messages? He wants you to fall in love with the right master. He wants you to fall in love with him. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest from the tyranny of stuff, from the lies of money. Come to me, love me, and you will find the contentment that you've always looked for but you can't find. See, and at the end, he leaves a choice. He says, you can be ruled by the master that enslaves and never satisfies. Or you can be ruled by the one who died to set you free. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, how often we hear the call of your son Come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I'll give you freedom and contentment. And yet we still cling to our worldly goods and our plans and our agendas and our false hopes that fail us over and over again. Help us to hear anew or for the first time your invitation to the good life. There's nothing you have withheld from us, including your son who died for us. May our hearts find rest, not in material things, but in you and your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name.